This week in the Dan Cave, the Seahawks finally get a blowout win, crushing the Jets to improve to 9-4. and four. And now they face a crucial three-game stretch to close out the season. But wait, how crucial is it really? We'll crank up the NFL playoff machine today and look at all the different scenarios in the Seahawks' playoff picture. You may be surprised. And Corbin Smith of Seahawk Maven joins me live to talk Seahawks. You don't want to miss that. It's signing day in college football today. We'll check in on the Cougs. And did we get a final word on the possibility of a 2020 Apple Cup? Sounds like it. Finally, did the Mariners just acquire their 2021 closer? All that and more coming up next in the Dan Cave Podcast. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. All right, everybody, welcome into episode 108 of the Dan Cave Podcast. Welcome back to the live stream as well. A little something different for you there, a little, little groove for you, a little something new from Neil Sean and a record he did uh, that came out on Friday. thought I'd change it up a little bit, you know. So let's get right into Seahawk talk, shall we? Thanks again for joining me, by the way, on the Dan Cave Podcast. In the uh, normal time slot of what will become the Emerald City Sportscast, we have some news about that later on in the show today, 10 o'clock, though, Pacific time every Wednesday, starting soon. We have a launch date. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But let's talk some Hawks. First of all, the Seahawks finally, finally, finally figure out how to blow out a team that they should blow out. And that's really the biggest takeaway uh, of their 40-3 to win against the Jets. So they moved to 9-4 and on the season. Um, let's take a quick look at what went right and what went wrong against the New York Jets on Sunday at Lumen Field. Uh, Front and center on the list of what went right versus the Jets, they ran the football, right? 33 attempts, 177 yards. This felt and looked a lot more like old-school football, but not to a fault. We'll get to that in a second. The Chris Carson-Carlos Hyde combination was lethal. Um, Chris Carson, 12 carries, 76 yards, and a touchdown Hyde, 15 carries, 66 yards. That looks like a really balanced timeshare. A couple things here. First of all, I think it's clear that Chris Carson is on a pitch count. And the Seahawks have, have, uh, maybe this is them admitting that they understand that maybe he's not the most durable guy in the world because of his running style. And they would rather have him fresh to potentially hammer teams in the playoffs and in these last few games. Uh, for playoff seeding. So really trying to keep the load off of him. Also, Pete Carroll admits that Chris Carson's foot still not 100%, so they don't want to take any chances. Also, a lot of what Carlos Hyde did, many of those carries came in the fourth quarter after the game was uh, clearly decided and starters were being pulled and, and Chris Carson wasn't in the game at that point. But still, even before then, thought they did a really nice job of managing the carries of those two players, kind of working them in and out. Um, really keeps the defense off balance. We've been wanting to see this for quite a, quite a while. Um, great balance overall on offense. And, and this is what, uh, just to touch on briefly, because this could be an entire episode. When we, when we bitch and moan about play calling, and it happened a lot last week, it's not about they run too much, they throw too much. It's about mix, right? It's about balance and mix. 2018, they ran too much, period. First, second down, they were predictable. They didn't throw it enough early. They didn't keep defenses guessing. That wasn't an issue last year. It hasn't been an issue this year. It's not how much they throw or how much they run. It's 
balance. And they really did that. You know, Pete Carroll talks about his magic number of 50. If you haven't heard this before, for Brian Schottenheimer, uh, he by his analytics, it's 53. But Carroll says he got this number from Vince Lombardi. Um, so it's a philosophy he's followed for a long time. And, and that 50, he arrives at by a combination of rushing attempts and pass completions. Um, and it, it, it seems to work. I think he's on to something here because they're one and two this season when they don't reach that magic number. They're seven and one now when they exceed it. Um, the other uh, the other thing that was good about this game, what was right about the Jets, is Russell Wilson got uh, back to good. And I don't know how to get it back. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, just popped into my head when I was writing this, and I uh, thought it was a good excuse to get some Xbox, Matchbox 20 in the show. He was back to good. He was very good. Um, but uh, I disagree with Rob Thomas. We do know what gets him back to good. And in this game, it was no sacks. Outstanding performance by the offensive line. Um, you could see the difference of having Brandon Shell back in the fold at right tackle, even though he's not 100%. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but you could see the clear upgrade it was having Shell back at right tackle. I thought Ethan Posick looked better at center also in his second game back um, from his injury, uh, from his concussion. Uh, the team's still finding opportunities to work Jordan Simmons in at left guard for Mike Upati. Clearly, he's he's risen to the top of that pecking order behind uh, the veteran Upati. Um, and... It, it was good. Now, Shell left in the second half. As I mentioned, we'll touch on that in a little bit. But a clear upgrade. Really good performance by the offensive line. Obviously, we saw the effectiveness in the running game. Uh, 177 yards on the ground. But it also, Russ had time to throw. And he didn't have to manage the pocket as much as he did um, in the previous week. I also thought it was Brian Schottenheimer's best play calling game of the year. Uh, the outstanding first drive, but we see that a lot. We saw it the week before. This time he carried that through the game. I thought the balance between run and pass, uh, I thought it was unpredictable. I thought he attacked the Jets in every part of the field, took deep shots when they were there. Um, we saw the pace improve. We saw the tempo improve. A lot more of the short game that we were all crying and screaming about the week before. So all the talk last week about not making adjustments during the game, certainly those adjustments were made during the week this week, and it really showed uh, against an outmanned Jets defense. End result for Russ, 21 out of 27, 206 yards, four touchdowns. The one interception that if you're like me in the moment, we thought, oh, no, here we go again. But but really in retrospect, it was he was taking a deep shot. It's a 50-50 ball to DK Metcalf. Um, you got to credit Marcus May for a great uh, individual effort there to come up with the interception. So really, not uh, something uh, something to really lose any sleep over. Um, what else went right? Jamal Adams can't talk about the game Sunday without talking about Jamal Adams. Another sack gives him eight and a half on the season. That is the all-time single-season record for a safety. Uh, he didn't even realize it at the time. Thought this was funny. It was one of those sacks where he forced Darnold out of bounds on a scramble. Um, because he didn't realize it, he didn't get to do the sack dance he had been practicing, so hopefully we'll see that again this week against Washington. Uh, eight and a half sacks in uh, in just nine games. Crazy. Um, and the defense overall was good, again, giving up just 16 points per game now over the last five games, and that includes the Hail Mary against the Eagles and the 17 in the first half of the Rams game five weeks ago. If you take those out, obviously that looks a lot better. 
Uh, we're going to talk to Corbin in just a minute about is that is that legit? Is that for real? Is it sustainable? What went wrong? There, not a lot. When you win 40 to 3, uh, not a lot went wrong. But here's one thing. you got to catch interceptions, right? Uh, Jamal Adams had one right in the breadbasket. Would have been a pick six. Um, later in the game, Ugo Amadi, same thing, right in the breadbasket. Probably would have been a pick six. Um, and K.J. Wright, I don't know, dropped maybe his fourth uh, easy interception in this game, too. Look, against good teams, like they're going to play this week, believe it or not, in the Washington football team and against the Rams, certainly, uh, next Sunday. When you have opportunities to make those plays, you got to make them. Uh, the other thing that went wrong is that Brandon Shell had to leave the game again. He was visibly limping. He's clearly not 100%. Um, the good news is, though, Pete Carroll says today he feels as good as he did on Wednesday a week ago, and so that that bodes well for his possibility to try and gut it out and play this week uh, against Washington. Uh, let's go over the other injuries and getting some guys healthy before we get to Corbin. Um, Carlos Dunlap, I was hoping this was the case, and it sounds like it was, could have played Sunday if he needed to uh, on that sprained foot. Um being as it was, it was the Jets, it was a game that they thought they could probably survive without him. They held him out. Um, they're hoping he feels better this week and can play against Washington. He thinks he's going to. Pete Carroll is also optimistic about that. And we may get some guys back off the injured list that we haven't seen in quite a while. Uh, not the least of which is Rashad Penny. Uh, the ACL injury, there was more damage at the time a year ago. Um, they've really been cautious with, cautious with him, really taking their time getting him back. Last week in practice, his first time on the practice field, Russell Wilson said he looked explosive, looked like a difference maker. Um, he may play Sunday. It feels like it's trending in that direction. Uh, Quentin Dunbar, also the uh, starting right cornerback from earlier in the season, sounds like he's back from his knee injury. Second week of practice should be a go in some capacity on Sunday as well. And Greg Olson returns to practice this week. This is hard to believe. Um, ruptured his plantar fascia tendon in his foot. I've damaged that thing before, not ruptured it, and it it, it put me on the shelf for six months. Uh, complete rupture is supposed to be better because then it can fix it and it can heal, but to heal this quickly, the thought of getting Greg Olson back, maybe even before the playoffs start, unbelievable. Uh, Cedric he also should be back this week in case Shell isn't 100% or can't go. On the Washington side, Alex Smith left the game against the 49ers with a calf strain. If you know the Alex Smith story, um, usually when a key player gets hurt the week before they play the Seahawks as a fan, I'm pretty happy about that. I'm not going to lie. I don't want anyone to get injured severely, but not having to face Alex Smith in the one loss column could be a key. But if you know his story, 100% he's a clear runaway winner of comeback player of the year this year. They've won four straight with him as the starter now. That calf strain in that leg, the one that he injured and took two years to come back from, there's not a lot of calf there. So it sounds like they were just being overly cautious. He could play this week. Uh, Dwayne Haskins, the first-round draft pick of a year ago, mopped up for him last week um, against the 49ers. If Smith can't go, it'll be Haskins. So we'll have to keep our eye on that as the week goes along. Um, defense the name of the game in Washington. Team has forced eight turnovers in the last four weeks. Uh, they are fourth in the league in yards allowed per game, sixth in points per game, fourth in the league in sacks. Uh, their last two first-round draft picks, Chase Young from this year with five-and-a-half, Montez Sweat, who we all wanted the Seahawks to take a year ago, or many of us did, with seven sacks, and then the uh, vulnerable veteran Ryan Kerrigan with five-and-a-half as well. Um, 
they're a team that can get after it. So all the more reason that Brandon Schell needs to be healthy on Sunday. Um, and they're not just about the pass rush, the trickle-down effect of that as well. They're pretty good in pass coverage, allowing just an 85.9 passer rating to opposing quarterbacks with uh, 12 interceptions on the year. Um, that's in the top half of the league as well. Seahawks averaging 30 points a game will be put to the test on Sunday. I want to welcome in uh, my good friend, uh, and uh, I'm sure many of you know him and love him for his work he does as the managing editor of Seahawk Maven, part of the Sports Illustrated Network. He also hosts the daily Locked on Seahawks podcast, outstanding stuff. Uh, He's been covering the Seahawks for a number of years. Corbin Smith joins me now. Corbin, hang on a second here. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. I had a good music choice there. Well, I just wanted to make sure I got you in. Uh, you know, Neil Sean had his moment, but it's time for him to go. I just still had him going in the background there, I guess. How are things going over in Spokane, my friend? I'm actually in the Seattle area now, so uh, I'm really excited to not have to fly to all the games anymore. That so. is outstanding. I knew you were moving, and that's never fun. I did not realize you were moving here. Well, it's it's good to have you. It'll, it'll certainly be easier to, to cover the team from here in Seattle, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely. It's it's been fun so far. I mean, obviously all the you know, all the fun stuff that goes with going into a new house, obviously, on top of having the weirdest, most bizarre season that we've ever endured <laughs> in the NFL to go with it too. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh that's for sure. Um I I have always said that moving uh moving out sucks, moving in's kind of fun because you get to set up your new place. Yeah, there's some fun stuff to it, but there's all the housekeeping things, especially when it's a new house. So it's give and take, but I was very excited to get back over here and uh, Spokane treated me well for a couple of years, but it's kind of hard to cover a team when you're not actually in the city. So, Well, it looks to me like I don't know how many unpacked boxes are off screen, but it looks like you got your background all set up and uh, and your, your setup's looking pretty good there. Yep, we're completely unboxed for the most part, so nice. it's uh, at least the ones that aren't in the closet. So <laughs> we moved into this place over a year ago. We still have some boxes. I'm not gonna lie, still have a few boxes. It's a never-ending process. <laughs> it, it really is. Hey, let's talk about the Seahawks uh, Jets game briefly, and then I want to talk about kind of some bigger picture issues. Um, what we saw versus the Jets is what we've wanted to see this team do against opponents we feel they should beat handily. And it's kind of a mark of Pete Carroll's tenure in Seattle. There's a number of these games we can point to where we want this result and we don't get it. Was this uh, was this an anomaly on Sunday, or is this something uh, more than that? I don't know if I would call it an anomaly just because you kind of get the sense that until the Seahawks actually had a game like this, that they were going to continue to wallow in these really close games. But... I'm kind of wondering now that they have done it and they have seen, hey, we can actually put a team away and then stay on the jugular a little bit that maybe now we might see them. I don't think they're going to do it this weekend. This is a really good football team. They're going to be playing in Washington that has an outstanding defense. But I could see down the line, I mean, who knows who San Francisco is going to be playing in week 17, and they seem to be a team that's unraveling a little bit. This could be a situation where the Seahawks just being able to have that get right game and actually go out and show, hey, we can put away a team and, and I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks going into this game, even before the Giants game, that the Jets were kind of a game that I was looking at as a trap game a little bit just because they had three games in a five-game stretch. They put up 27 or more points. They have been scoring a lot of points over the last month. And yeah. for Seattle to go out and hold them to just three. Now, granted, their kicker missed nine points worth of uh, points, but – true. 
And now he's no longer employed as he rightfully shouldn't be. But uh, the defense again, played outstanding football and the jets have some decent players. And Sam Darnold is just one of those guys just mystifies you. He can make a couple throws. You're like, that's why he was a top five pick. And then he'll turn around and throw a pass. Like the one he did to Jamal Adams that should have been intercepted that you're just like, you're in your third year. Why are you still making horrible decisions like that? So yeah, it's a bad football team that they beat, but I think there are some things to take away from that game. I'm just I'm blown away by the depth that they have on this offensive line right now compared to any team they've had in the Pete Carroll era. I mean, Chad Wheeler was one of the five best players for the Seahawks in this football game on Sunday. Yeah, I'm yeah, I was just flat out impressed with how he stepped in for Brandon Shell. He looked so much more comfortable out there. They've had so many injuries up front over the last four or five games. And a lot of people were bashing this line when they were giving up all those sacks to Russell Wilson. But you watch the tape. Most of them aren't on the offensive line. This group has continued to play really well this year. And so I'm encouraged by a lot of things coming out of this game. I know the opponent, you should destroy the New York Jets, but it should be encouraging the fans that they actually went out and got it done. And, And maybe that could spark down the line here, the ability to be able to put some teams away. And it's just been such a struggle for the last two years for this team. Yeah, you touched on a lot of good stuff there. And and there are two positives I take away from this. One is that Carol actually said this week, you know, he made a comment, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he said, it's about time. You know, we've wanted to do that to a team for a while. And so that, that right there as a fan, makes me feel good about the approach. And also the fact that they didn't just shut it down in the second half when the game was in hand and just run the football, try to milk the clock, get out of there. Russell, when he was in there in the third quarter, was still throwing the football. And maybe we're seeing a little bit of a shift there in philosophy on how to close out games and get a team when it, when they're down. Um, let's hope so. Let's hope they're in that position again over the next three weeks. Yeah, they put the foot on the throat, and that's something they have mm-hmm. really struggled to do. I mean, I'm thinking about the Patriots game. They got up a couple scores, and I thought this game's going to get out of hand. And then next thing you know, New England's at the one-yard line and has a chance to win the game. The Vikings game was very similar. And so that's just been a common theme for this franchise the last two years. They've been able to win most of those games, but you know, I think a lot of fans were probably just happy that they didn't have to take their blood pressure medicine like they do most weeks. (laughs) It seems like, wow, we're actually up 34 points. This game's – I mean, me as a reporter even – I got my post-game article done late in the third quarter. Yeah, That's unheard of as a Seahawks beat reporter. I'm used to, at the end of the game, having to completely destroy everything that I've written and start from scratch. So everybody was happy to see that this weekend. Yeah, it was good to see. The defense again came to play. I thought they were outstanding on the front end and the back end, even without Carlos Dunlap, even without Quentin Dunbar. without Ryan Neal, who's been playing such a key role this year, is is what they've done the last five weeks, is, is, is that sustainable? I think it is. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there arguing, well, look at the quarterbacks and look at the offenses that they've played. And my counter argument is going to be, I don't think they played very many good quarterbacks early in the season and mm-hmm. they had their struggles. I'm thinking about, look at what Cam Newton has done for most of this year. Cam yeah. Newton's one yeah. outstanding game this year was against the Seahawks. He mm-hmm. just couldn't miss. And they had several other quarterbacks that lit them up. Ryan Fitzpatrick still had a solid game yardage-wise when they played the Dolphins. It just felt like things just weren't coming together. And the secondaries had so many guys in and out. The pass rush couldn't get things figured out. The linebacking situation, you lose Bruce Irvin, you move K.J. Wright. Jordan Brooks is trying to get in lineup, then he gets hurt. So there's been a number of variables at play there. But I really feel like Ken Norton Jr. now has honed in 
on the skill sets of his players, and he's playing to those strengths, whether it's Jamal Adams, Damon Harrison on Sunday, mm-hmm. get the big fella in there and let him eat, and he's doing that. Uh, he's just maximizing the personnel that he's got. He's mixing things up. I, I just feel like the predictability has not been near as bad as it was early in the season. I think part of it was just trying to figure out what yeah. he had defensively. And when you have new players that aren't able to get on the field together, they still have only had one full game with the four projected starters in the secondary. And so yeah. they're hoping to finally get that second game this weekend with Quentin Dunbar coming back. So I think it is for real. You have to obviously take wins against teams like the Jets with a grain of salt. But I, I still think when you look at the fact that the Rams game, the second half, they held him to six points. Oh. It, you look at the Arizona game, they had a couple drives where, if not for penalties, they would have gotten three and outs and ended up giving up touchdowns. There were growing pains in that game, but you could see that this defense was coming along and progressing, and that has continued each week. So I absolutely – I was waiting for the entire first half. When is this defense going to start playing to the talent that it has? You're finally starting to see that. For them to go out and do what they did on Sunday without Carlos Dunlap available and still generating some pass rush and making plays in the secondary, it's very encouraging. Uh, real quick, has Ken Norton Jr. saved his job with the performances the last five weeks? Absolutely. And it, what's funny about this is I was calling in the offseason for them to potentially make a move there because of how things transpired during the 2019 season. And and I've always been a big fan of the, of the guy. I think Ken Norton Jr. is an outstanding person. I think he's a really good linebacker coach, but yeah. there have been yeah. questions. And in the first half, you had questions. And the more that I watched tape on this team, though, it's like, I feel like the play calls aren't necessarily the problem. It's the execution and all the different pieces that have been in and out of the lineup. And so now you're finally seeing some continuity and some chemistry. And it seems like he's having a lot more confidence over there. And you can even tell when you're interviewing him in press conferences that his confidence has been taken up a notch by the way his players have rebounded from that accountability meeting that they had. They really turned their season around with that meeting. I want to talk about one player who's rebounded in particular, and you wrote a, a great piece this week on Seahawk Maven about KJ Wright. KJ Wright two years ago thought he was thought he was done in Seattle. Uh, mm-hmm. Tested free agency, thought he was going to get a significant offer, didn't get as good an offer as he had hoped, and the Seahawks were able to bring him back. But the way the deal was structured, we all thought it was a one and done deal. There's no way they were going to pay him seven and a half, eight and a half million dollars this year on the cap. Um, with what we saw from him last year as far as a decline in in his speed and his ability to cover ground. This has been a revelation of a season for K.J. Wright this year. He's been great. Uh, touch on a couple of things. What's been the key to that success, and do you see him being a Seahawk now beyond 2020? So answering your first question, I think the big key has been the position change. Yeah. I absolutely love watching K.J. Wright play Sam Linebacker. Mm-hmm. And, Dan, I want you to think about last season with this team. One of the biggest issues they had when they lost to the Rams in Week 14 last year was they could not defend reverses and wide runs. They were just mm-hmm. losing contain on the edge. And then I want to zoom back to last weekend against the Jets. There were two plays in a three-play span. The Jets were in Seahawks territory. They had moved the ball fairly well. And this was the second quarter. And K.J. Wright off the edge had a three-yard tackle for loss and a five-yard tackle for loss where he just looked like he got shot out of a cannon. And he is not the greatest athlete, but his instincts continue to allow him to be successful. And, And I think transitioning to that position where 
you can allow him to blitz a little bit more off the edge. He's been consistently getting quarterback hits and sacks in games as of late. His ability to set the edge, he's very disciplined. You know he's going to blow up screens. I think that negates some of the declining athleticism that we've seen from him as an off-ball linebacker, and I think it's going to prolong his career. So that leads into the second part of this question. Now, the Seahawks have to figure out what they're willing to pay him because I think next year Jordan Brooks is going to be your every-down weak-side linebacker. Right now they're still using K.J. Wright on passing situations in nickel quite a bit as that weak side linebacker. I don't see that happening next year. So that begs the question, what do you pay KJ Wright, a guy that's given you so much in 10 plus years as a stud linebacker, one of the most underrated players on your team, how much are you going to pay him if he's going to see a reduced workload where he's just playing that Sam linebacker spot and he's maybe logging 40, 50% of the snaps. There are some complicated things they're going to have to sort through, especially with all the other roster decisions they have to make. Jamal Adams needs a new contract. Shaquille Griffin may need a new contract. Who knows what they're going to do with Chris Carson. I can see the argument on both sides of the coin there because the impact he has when he's out there on the field. And they have a couple other big names they're going to have to worry about too. Tyler Lockett's going to need an extension soon. So (laughs) they've got a lot of decisions to make and the salary cap is going to go down because of COVID-19. And so you add in all those things, Ethan Posick's another name I'm going to throw in there. Sure. You have all those decisions you've got to make. And so I don't know that it's a given that KJ Wright is back next year, just because of all those variables, but I think he's certainly earned that opportunity. And you mentioned last year, you know, last year he set career highs in tackles, passes, defense to interceptions. He had a fantastic 2019 season. I just didn't know if he could do it again. And he doesn't have as many tackles this year, but he's arguably been more consistent. And I think a lot of it has to do with the position. And Pete Carroll talked about earlier this week. It's just, it's perfect now for his skill set at this stage of his career. And I think he can play another two or three years in the league at that spot and still be a very effective player. So I'm curious to see what happens. I think the Seahawks would love to bring him back, but there are going to be some things they have to sort through with the salary cap and how much is he willing to take for a one or two year deal to come back. There's a number of factors at play here. It's it's not a slam dunk that he's back next year. Yeah, certainly the Seahawks and Pete Carroll have a have a long history of uh, taking care of their veteran players as they enter free agency. Guys are comfortable here. Uh, to me, it seems like a, a classic situation where because of his performance the last two years, K.J. Wright may, may have opportunities that will pay him more money elsewhere, mm-hmm. and he'll have to weigh that against maybe wanting to close out his career and just play for the team he's comfortable with and that he loves. Um Listen, I want to switch gears here just for a minute um, because I want to talk Cougs just for a moment. Hear me out. A lot of people might not know this, but today's National Signing Day in college football. And uh, one of the guys that I'm most excited about that the Cougs inked uh, quite a while ago, I think he verbaled six, seven months ago, and you and I talked back then, Andrew Edson, young defensive end out of Snoqualmie right here in my backyard. Um you have a history with this young man. I think he's one of the most dynamic recruits in this class. Tell me about your connection to Andrew Edson and a little bit about him as a player. So I didn't coach defensive or offensive line, and it's ironic. I'm actually wearing my Mount Sai sweatshirt right now. I coached <laughs> one year there, and I got to work with him a lot in the weight room. And so that's where I really started to see. And that is where championships are won. They're won in the offseason when you're doing your weightlifting and your conditioning and stuff. 
And when this kid came in as a freshman, he immediately caught my eye. I looked at head coach Charlie Canuna. I was like, there's one of our guys. Yeah. And you could just see immediately the work ethic. And he had the frame. It's like if he just adds some weight to that with the work ethic he's got, he's got some good quick twitch for a player of his size. And so I wasn't there when he was – I wasn't on the coaching staff when he's been tearing it up last season when they made a run towards a state championship and he was one of their best players, but certainly he's a, he's a tough hard nosed kid. That's going to make plays against the run. He was developing some counter moves to go with his pass rush. Uh, He is certainly a guy that's with his work ethic is going to continue to add muscle to his frame too. So I think he's a kid that could come in and maybe surprise you with how quickly he can come in and contribute playing in the PAC 12. Certainly it's been a tough year for all the seniors not being able to play yeah. uh, in the state of Washington. But this kid's a, he's a big-time talent, and he's a really, really good kid on top of it. Well, kudos to Rolovich's staff for getting in on this kid early. He, he really yes. jumps out on tape. Uh, as much as any edge player that they've recruited maybe in the last seven or eight years, usually the kids that, that sign in Pullman at that position uh, need to add a good 40 to 50 pounds to even be a factor in the Pac-12. This kid looks like he's not that far away from being ready to contribute. I just wanted to get your take on that, talk a little Cougar football here. Um, time goes fast, man. It was good to catch up with you. I really appreciate the work you do at Seahawk Maven. You can also listen to Corbin on the daily Locked On Seahawks podcast on the Locked On Network. Um, follow him on Twitter as well. He's a great follow. And uh, really appreciate the work you do, man. One of the one of the best out there at covering the Seahawks. And uh, happy to have you here in the Seattle area. We'll have to catch up for a beer once uh once all this uh, this silly thing that's going on right now, keeping us from going out for beers. But, Appreciate uh, <laughs> it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. That was Corbin Smith of the uh, Seahawk Maven catching up, uh, talking some Seahawks. Really interesting stuff there. And go to the website. Much much deeper breakdown on a couple of things he touched on there. The K.J. Wright story. Uh, he also mentioned Damon Snacks Harrison and his performance against the Jets. He digs into that a little bit with some film study. And also um, he mentioned Chad Wheeler. If you're like me, when you saw Shell have to leave the game and Wheeler come in at right tackle, um, man, that was scary, right? But he actually held his own, and and that pass protection I talked about earlier really giving Russell a nice pocket to work from on Sunday uh, didn't really change much with Wheeler being out. So maybe it was just you know, it was the first live action he'd seen in quite a while the week before um, against the Giants. Um, clearly he made an adjustment. But we'll see what happens this week um, as they take on the Washington football team. Let's get into the playoff picture really quickly because this is always fun to do this time of year. ESPN has this great, we call it the playoff machine. If you haven't checked it out, do it. Just Google ESPN playoff machine. It's a lot easier to find it that way. A little pro tip for you than it is to go to the ESPN site and try to find it. Um, And you get to pick any way you want. You could literally go through and manually pick games for the next three weeks all across the league to see what you think is going to happen. And then it'll spit it out and tell you what the seedings are, what the first-round matchups are going to be. Right now, if the season ended today, and the reason I want to do do this is because I want to weigh how important, I mean, they're all important, right, but how crucial the next two weeks are and how the Seahawks perform over the next two weeks, how it may impact their playoff standing. If the season ended today, the Seahawks would be the five seed. Green Bay has jumped into the one seed. Remember, only one team in the expanded playoffs this year gets a bye. That would be the Green Bay Packers um, with seven teams from each conference now making the playoffs. The Seahawks would be the five seed. They would play at Washington. 
So they would turn right around three weeks later and play a game at Washington just like they're going to on Sunday. The Rams would host Tampa as winner of the division in the the, uh, third spot, and the Cardinals would travel to New Orleans. Here's what I did to make it simple over the next couple of weeks is they also have some some templates. You can choose home team for all the games if you don't want to go through and pick them all individually. I chose highest winning percentage, wins each game, basically chalk. But then I went in and manipulated the Seahawks results to see how they would differ. If the Seahawks lose this Sunday to the Washington football team, uh, I'm sorry, let's do this first. If they beat Washington but lose to the Rams, who have owned them since Sean McVay took over as coach of the Rams, they would finish 11-5, and second in the division. The sixth seed, they would open the playoffs at the Rams. If they lose to Washington this Sunday but then turn around and beat the Rams— Still 11-5, and five, but they would win the division in that case. They'd be the third seed. They would open at home against the Tampa Bay Bucks and Tom Brady. If they win out, 12-4, and four, win the division, third seed, home versus Tampa. Lose out, 9-7, and seven, third in the division, seven seed at New Orleans. So, in a sense, what happens the next two weeks doesn't really matter a whole lot at the end of the day. Of course it matters, though, because what you want to be doing when the playoffs come around is you want to be hot and you want to be healthy. So don't really fret that much, and I'll try to reflect that on this show, over what happens Sunday, playing a great defense on, remember, a terrible field um, with some questions about injuries. We don't know who's going to start a quarterback for Washington against a red-hot Washington football team. And I'm going to pat myself on the back here for a second for not calling them the Redskins. Finally got that down. I still call the L.A. Chargers the San Diego Chargers. Um, But it's not so much what happens the next two weeks as it is how they're playing. Just keep that in mind. they got to get healthy, and they get got to get hot over the next two weeks. Um, That's going to do it for Pro Football Talk. Coming up on the Dan Cave, it is college football signing day, as we mentioned with Corbin. I'll check in on the fax machine. We get clarification on the possibility of a 2020 Apple Cup. And did the Mariners just trade for their 2020 closer? But first, this quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Viennes, host of the Emerald City Sportscast, part of the brand-new 365 Sportscast National Sports Talk Radio Network. I'll be coming to you live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. for you fellow West Coasters, to break down everything Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, yes, Cougs, and even the Kraken joining the NHL in 2021. As a lifelong fan and longtime Northwest sports journalist, I'll break down what's happening in and outside the lines of all our Emerald City teams. I'll be emotional and analytical and have some fun along the way. And I won't be alone. I'll be joined by guests each week as well. So join me, Dan Viennes, for the Emerald City Sportscast, debuting January 6th at 1 o'clock Eastern Time on the new 365 Sportscast Network. All right, is it kind of weird to run an ad for your own show within your show? Yeah, it is. But um, part of what we're doing here um, is I'm trying to get that muscle memory back. It is so easy to just turn on your microphone, hit record, Start talking for 45 minutes or an hour or an hour 10 or an hour 15. You can go off on all the tangents you want to. Um, If you screw up, you can edit it out later. 
doing a live radio show is something I haven't done in, uh, I'm not even going to say how many years out loud, a very, very long time. And kind of getting that feel back again for uh, managing all of this. Um, I appreciate Corbin Smith being a guinea pig and coming on here with us. Uh, thought that went pretty smoothly, except for me bringing up music instead of him. But just wanted to get that in there. And also a reminder that the Emerald City Sportscast does launch on January 6th. If you follow me on Twitter you've see, or any social media, you've seen that news already. But it is official, 10 a.m. Pacific time, January 6th. That will be a Wednesday. Um, I have my first guest lined up. I'm really excited about who that is. I'll uh, leave a little suspense for that. Um, but I'll be joined live by one of my favorite, let's say, writer analysts, podcasters, media members, uh, experts in, uh, I'm not even going to tell you the, the field, the genre. I'm just going to leave that uh, to your imagination, and I will uh, clarify that in the next couple of weeks. Let's talk a little bit more college football before we get to some Mariner news to wrap this up. It does now appear there will be no Apple Cup this year. And I've I've cried my tears for this. I'm, I'm kind of over it. It's sort of par for the course. I've actually come full circle on this, and I'd rather there just wasn't an Apple Cup because it just it just wouldn't accurately represent or reflect the rivalry or these two teams. Um, it's easy as a football fan. I've seen some of this out there, and, and I'm going to be honest. I caught myself a few times feeling this way that, you know, maybe there just shouldn't have been a college football team because – we should have never expected 18 to 21-year-old kids to be able to isolate themselves and strictly follow protocols and basically go six months without being kids or young men. Um, it was a little too much to ask, even without students being on campus and so forth. But it's just been a debacle this college football season. Um, as most of you probably know by now, UW has had to pull out of the Pac-12 title game because one of their position groups has been ravaged by positive COVID tests and contact tracing and direct contacts. Um, the Cougs did get rescheduled this week for their last game at Utah. It's going to be no easy task, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how, the, how the, that young roster responds to a difficult trip in, uh, against a good opponent to wrap up this. Uh, what will be if they can play the game? We'll see. Um, they've been pulled off the bus two hours before a game starts before, remember? Uh, we'll see how they respond against a good football team on the road against Utah. Nick Rolovich confirms this will be WSU's last game. They will not even accept a bowl if offered. Obviously, bowls this year don't carry the weight that they have in the past. But but I also look at it this way. This has been really tough for these kids. Imagine being a college football player all the time they put in, in the classroom, in the weight room, in the training room, on the practice field. They had spring practice canceled. They've been practicing now since June, and they've played three games so far. I mean, that's they've been away from their families. Um, you know, when you dream about playing college football, you dream about the environment, and there's been none of that. It's I try to look at it from the kids' standpoint, too. This, is, this has been a tough road to hoe for them. Um, I'll kind of just be, it'll be a big relief when it's over and we can look forward to what I believe will be a normal 2021 college football season. Um, it is signing day today. We're not going to go crazy and go over a bunch of the names. Um, I'm just always interested to check in 
and see what the Cougs do. And this is really Nick Rolovich's first full class um, where he's had an entire year to be able to recruit these kids. What intrigues me, what stands out about this class, if you take a look at it, um, and 24-7 Sports is a great place to look. Cougcenter.com is another place that really does a great job of tracking all of these um, all these signees. And kudos to the Washington State Athletic Department and their football team. If you go to their Twitter feed, um, it's really the best the best way to see this. As kids are committing today and sending in their letters of intent, um, they're releasing a video on each of these players. It's been really well produced. It has the kid putting on his hat, saying, I'm committing to WSU. It has his family saying, go Cougs. And then they have Alex Brink, the former three-time Apple Cup winning quarterback of the Cougs, um, who's now an analyst for them on the radio side, uh, doing a little video recap of their career. It's just phenomenal. I've never seen this come out of Pullman before. When uh, Mike Leach was leading the program, we just kind of got the bare bones and you had to sort of hunt and peck and and seek out information about each recruit other than just the little thumbnail description that they release on each kid. Really great job by the WSU Athletic Department and the football program over there to promote these kids. Um, check them out on Twitter if you can. Um, but what I like about this class it, that stands out for me is some really interesting gets on the defensive side of the ball, especially in the front seven. Um, they had some needs in the secondary that I thought they really addressed last year and um, in Rolovich's first class and with some transfers and uh, and a JC signing or two. But they really attacked the front seven in this class. Um, and they got a surprise, too. And, and these are kind of fun. They don't happen very often in Pullman. Usually if they happen, they happen in the reverse where we lose a kid at the last second. Um, but... Um, and now I, I did everything but write down his name. See, this is what's, oh, this is so great about live radio, right? I don't want to tease you and then not give you the name. Gavin Barthiel is his name. He is a 6'2", 205-pound linebacker out of Florida. Gavin Barthiel, cool name. Jake Dickard and his staff uh, showing off their recruiting acumen, getting this kid out of Florida. He was he had offers from dozens of Power Five schools. He was a commit to Georgia Tech, who decommitted recently, and um, nobody was really expecting him to send in his LOI today, but he did, and he is now a Coug. Uh, also, always look at the quarterback situation. Really intriguing signee, Xavier Ward, 6'2", 195-pound quarterback out of Corona, California. He's a three-star now. But some feel like this kid really would have been a late riser, similar to what happened with Jaden Delora last year when he committed to WSU and then reaffirmed his commitment to Nick Rolovich because he knew him from Hawaii. Um, Ward is interesting. Just 16 years old heading into his senior season. Of course, they didn't play a senior season. Uh, some feel like he he would have worked his way potentially into being a four-star quarterback on the West Coast. Um Accurate, doesn't have the strongest arm in the world at this point, but just 16 years old, he could get stronger. Kind of reminds me of Delora from what I see on tape. He's mobile, um, places the ball well, can move around a little bit. Um, pretty good anticipation. So Xavier Ward, the quarterback in this class. Um, but you can read all the signing day stuff, as I said, on Twitter. Just an outstanding job by the WSU uh, athletic department there. Let's talk some baseball uh, to wrap some things up. Uh, the Mariners acquire 30-year-old right-hander Rafael Montero from the Rangers in exchange for a 17-year-old pitching prospect you've never heard of and another prospect to be named later that you've never heard of. 
either. And I know that because I've never heard of the 17-year-old pitching prospect. He was an international signee from a year ago. Um, Rafael Montero is interesting um, in, in the way that just about every bullpen arm that the Mariners sign is interesting. A little bit of a bounce-back project and a guy that has some warts. Um, the the Rangers moved on from because of, he's a veteran. They're trying to get younger. They're trying to get cheaper in Texas with a new regime there once again. Uh, came back from Tommy John surgery last year. Had a pretty good season in the shortened uh, 2020, a 3.7 FIP out of the bullpen. A K rate, uh, strikes out about 10 per nine. Um, had eight save opportunities last year and converted all eight save opportunities. And so you would wonder, is this guy our closer? Really not a clear-cut closer candidate on the Mariners roster at this point. Potentially, Kendall Graveman could fill that role. Um, doesn't look like any of the young kids are ready for that role. Um, here's what I'll have to say about this. Uh, let's hope not, actually. Um, not a proven track record. He's His hard hit rate is not great. He had a really low BABIP last year, batting average on balls in play, which would suggest some regression to the mean for him. Um, certainly, if you talk to Rangers fans... There's a lot of, uh, well, he's your problem now. That tends to happen a lot with trades like this. Um, we do the same thing when guys go the other way sometimes, right? But the Mariners have shown an eye for finding bullpen guys and getting the most out of them. Um, taking a pitch away, emphasizing a pitch, changing their pitch mix, their sequencing, um, getting the most out of them. We saw it in Brandon Brennan, taken in the Rule 5 draft two years ago. We saw it with Austin Adams, who was just cast off by the Washington Nationals in a season when they were hurting for bullpen help and turned around at the deadline in 2019 and acquired two more relief pitchers from the Mariners because their bullpen was hurting so much. But Austin Adams, before he hurt his knee in 2019, was outstanding out of the bullpen and then ended up being the piece in that trade to the Padres this year that brought back Taylor Trammell and others. Um. They've done a nice little job of this. Matt McGill, Matt Whistler, guys off the scrap heap that um, uh, Connor Sadzik before he got hurt that had been cast off from other organizations and really found some success with the Mariners. And so for them to make a move for a guy like this obviously shows that they have confidence in his ability to contribute out of the bullpen. But I'm going to I'm going to put this guy in the category of. Uh, let's add as many interesting guys to the bullpen mix as we can and see how it shakes out. I mean, that's really the position they're in right now, right? Except for this. Jerry DePoto has said, he's been on the record from the very, very outset of the offseason that he feels that the Mariners can contend in 2021 in the expanded playoffs. And that the only thing they have to do, to, well, not the only thing, but the, the one key thing they have to do to put themselves in a position to do that is improve the bullpen. That if the bullpen had been slightly better in 2020, we might have been talking about a playoff team. So is this it? Is it he, When he says, when he said that he wanted to add two to three established big league arms to help the back end of the bullpen 
was bringing Kendall Graveman back and converting him to a full-time reliever and trading for Rafael Montero. Was it, was it, were those the two of the, the two to three? Um, I hope not, and I don't think it is. I think we've seen enough from Jerry Depoto. One thing, whether you like him or not, and if you don't like Jerry DePoto and the job he's done, then you're just simply one of those Mariner fans who is so stuck in the past and in cynicism that you're just not willing to have an open mind about what's happening there. We know how transparent he is. And when he tells us he thinks they can contend, he doesn't think Rafael Montero is the key to that happening. What he does know is that the bullpen market is far from being picked over. In fact, a total of only five free agent relief pitchers have signed all across Major League Baseball to this point this season. Two of those names were guys that I mentioned a few weeks ago as potential targets for the Mariners. Uh, Trevor May, Seattle native, signed with the Mets. Thought he was a potential closer after a couple of good seasons with the Twins. Uh, Matt Wisler, who we let go in 2018 or early 2019, had a good uh, 2019 had a good 2020 season with the Twins, signed with the Giants. They're two of the five off that list, but that's it. And there's a long list. There's expensive guys that, that the Mariners aren't even going to call, like Liam Hendricks. There are old, washed-up guys who might have one good season left in them. There are young, unproven guys with warts. Um, there are names. There are middle names. Uh, there's guys like uh, Ian Kennedy coming off a really outstanding season at the age of 36, has kind of reinvented himself, all sorts of names like that. Jerry Depoto is going to wait this market out. He's not going to be at the front of the line. He's going to wait for that market to set itself. Now, when Trevor May signed his two-year deal with the Mets, we kind of thought that would spur some action, especially with the winter meetings happening in December. But I think we clearly saw that with the winter meetings being conducted virtually this year and not in person, that there just wasn't, it didn't spur enough activity. So I still expect more moves to be made, and I expect at least one of those to be a fairly recognizable uh, back into the bullpen closer candidate type. I still like Blake Trinan as a guy who sort of put his career back together um, after a really, really terrible 2018 Um had a great season as sort of the eighth inning guy with the Dodgers last year um, and and could be a guy that I think we can see in Seattle. Someone like that. Um, so don't sleep on what's happened so far. <laughs> I don't want to see any. And you know what? To, to be fair, I see less of this than I have before. I think, I think people are starting to catch on. Mariner fans are starting to catch on. I think they saw enough in 2020 to know, hey, these young guys can play. And oh, geez, look at this trade he pulled off with the Padres that universally all the experts out there said, man, I don't know what what A.J. Preller in, in San Diego is doing, but Jerry DePoto just took him to the woodshed on that, on that trade. I think they're seeing that the direction is positive right now, and they're more willing to give the Mariners the benefit of the doubt. We're not seeing as much um, like, oh, Rafael Montero, World Series. We're not seeing... We're not seeing that kind of sarcastic reaction as much. Um, also, I, I did want to touch on this because as soon as we wrapped up the show last week, the Mariners, of course, at the winter meetings, 
went out and traded or signed a pitcher, acquired a starting pitcher, a really interesting starting pitcher. And now this is a guy I can get excited about more so than a Rafael Montero, Chris Flexen. Um, interesting story. Former top prospect of the Mets. Really fell on some hard times. Went to Korea and got his stuff together and really worked some things out. Kind of did what the Mariners have done with pitchers. Kind of did did that himself or, or had someone over in Korea do that for him. Changed his pitch mix. Started using his curveball a lot more. Had basically, from the scouting reports I can read, had, had essentially abandoned it his last year with the Mets. So the Mets were not having him throw his curveball as much. But when you watch video and you can find these online, and, and I love the overlays where they show a guy's delivery as he's throwing a fastball and then also throwing a curveball. Um, outstanding, really sinking, hard-dropping curveball with the exact same arm action as his fastball. Um, throws hard, still just 26 years old, a 2.74 FIP over in Korea, um, 10Ks per nine. The way the contract was structured suggests the Mariners plan to use him as a starter. There were um, some pretty substantial options, uh, not options, but but bonuses built in uh, if he hits a certain number of innings. Uh, the way the contract was written tells me that, A, there were other teams that were interested in Chris Flexen and that for him to commit to the Mariners, they had to give him some assurances contractually that he was going to get an opportunity to start. So with a six-man rotation now, we touched on this briefly last week, but now you're talking Marco Gonzalez, when we talked um, last week about the potential for trading for Sonny Gray, which I wouldn't expect to happen now. You're talking Marco Gonzalez, Husei Kikuchi, uh, Justice Sheffield, uh, Justin Dunn, probably um, Chris Margevicius, and at some point, Logan Gilbert. If Chris Flexen has an outstanding spring and can build on and show what allowed him to have so much success in Korea— uh, I would think he would edge out a guy like Margivicious. Um, but those two guys are very similar also. Very, very similar profiles. And whichever one of those two doesn't make the rotation, I would expect him to be a guy that can be a real versatile swingman and can pitch multiple innings and can start or spot start. Or at some point in 2021, especially if they think this is a team that can contend, if and when Logan Gilbert comes up, if those other guys are all pitching well and a guy like Chris Flexen looks great, uh, that may hasten the Mariners' decision on whether or not to move Justin Dunn back to the bullpen, which I still think a lot of us feel like, given the choice, is probably going to happen at some point. Um, I think clearly before 2022. I, ultimately, ideally, you would have them make that decision in the offseason so that he would have the entire offseason, as Kendall Graveman has this year to prepare and train as a relief pitcher and get ready mentally and physically for that role. Um, but we'll see. If uh, if it comes to that, I don't think the Mariners would hesitate to move him to the bullpen if uh, if they kind of have, um, you know, one extra arm for that rotation too many. Um, so DePoto waiting the bullpen market out. I still think, uh, I don't think Chris Flexen is it. I still think that he's going to comb sort of the bargain bin uh, for starting pitchers. Um, you know, sign a guy coming off an injury or a veteran guy looking for another opportunity. Um, so uh, still a lot more to be done um, over there at T-Mobile Park.
Um, we're wrapping things up here soon. I, I want to touch again on um, the Emerald City Sportscasts. Uh, if you haven't heard of this, if you don't know what this is, there is a new national radio internet sports talk network, the 365 Sportscast, launching in January. This is helmed by a couple of guys. Um, Mark Rosenman, who is one, uh, Mark and AJ have been uh, longtime hosts of a successful radio show in the New York market. And uh, they've kicked around this idea for a long time of launching an internet sports talk radio network. And the emphasis will be on regional sportscasts. They are going to have some uh, professional athletes and some pro hosts do some shows that are more national based in their scope. But right now to launch, there's a group of us that are mostly doing what I'm going to be doing with the ECS, and that is focusing on the region. So uh, some really cool things in store. As I said, I've got my first guest lined up for January 6th at 10 a.m. That'll be the launch episode. Um, it'll be kind of like what you saw today. Uh, hope to have live guests every week. If that doesn't work for time, uh, there will be some pre-recorded interviews. Um, we'll have some fun segments. It'll be more up to the date than the pod, uh, up to the minute than the podcasts. Um, checking in on kind of local trends, local news developments. Um, looking at all our teams inside the lines and outside the lines. Um, so to follow me and get all those updates on when that's starting, follow me at Seahawks Forever on Twitter. I did set up a second Twitter account. Uh, and tried to brand it for the ECS. I think in the long run it will be better off if I just convert my regular Twitter feed, so I will be doing that uh, at some time in the near future. Um, and as far as the 365 Sportscast, there will be an app for it soon on both Android and Apple phones. It'll be available, obviously, on the web, but also on Alexa. Hopefully I didn't say that too loud. I don't want her to start turning on and off lights out there. But um, anyway, thanks for joining me today. Thanks again for Corbin Smith for joining me on the show today. Um, next week, of course, we'll check back in on the Seahawks and their playoff run and how that shapes up after another week with just two weeks to go. And we'll check in on the Mariners, see if they've made any more moves as well. Until then, I am Dan Viennes. Join me again at this time next week for the Dan Cave Podcast. As always, go Seahawks, go Mariners, and go Cougs. Go Cougs.